Last Monday was Memorial Day, when many Americans make an annual pilgrimage to a cemetery. Some go to put flowers on the grave of a departed loved one. Uh, Some may visit a national cemetery where men and women who've paid the ultimate price for their country lie buried. Others may visit a cemetery that's been neglected for a while. So they go to help. They go to cut the grass or pull some weeds out of respect for the dearly departed. When I go to a cemetery, I like to read the epitaphs on some of the tombstones. Some of them are serious and and many of them are quite funny. For instance, the tombstone in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, that says, here lies Jonathan Blake. He stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Or how about Boot Hill Cemetery in Tombstone, Arizona? That's right. How would you like to be buried in Tombstone, Arizona, where the tombstone reads, here lies Lester Moore, who took four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. Or maybe the one in Thermot, Maryland, that says, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Or Latumpka, Alabama. This is one of my favorites. Solomon Pease. Pease is not here, only the pod. Pease shelled out and went home to God. But my all-time favorite is the tombstone of the hypochondriac that reads, I told you I was sick. What do you want people to say about you when you're gone? Oh, her landscaping was immaculate. You know, that guy was never late for work. Well, those would be fine things, but wouldn't you prefer to hear, here lies a woman of character, of beauty, both inside and out. Or here lies a godly man who always kept his word. I'm standing here today at the burial site of Dwight Lyman Moody and his dear wife, Emma. This is one of my favorite spots in the world to reflect and think. D.L. Moody was a 19th century evangelist who sort of redefines the word amazing. Without higher education, he founded three schools and two publishing companies. Without theological training, he reshaped Victorian Christianity in the late 1800s. And without radio, television, or the internet, he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with a hundred million people. And his influence continues today. How can that happen? How can a guy from such humble beginnings be the person that was used by God more than anyone else in the 19th century. I mean, he had the equivalent of about a fifth grade education, and yet he shared the gospel of Jesus with over 100 million people. How can that be? In 1872, while speaking in Dublin, Ireland, Moody had a conversation with a British evangelist named Henry Varley that would change his life forever. Varley said to Moody, the world has yet to see 
what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. That statement struck fire in Moody's heart, and he left that discussion saying, by God's help, I aim to be that man. His life is a testament to that commitment. The inscription on D.L. Moody's tombstone reads, He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And on Emma's stone are the words, His servants shall serve him, and they shall reign forever and ever. What do you want others to say when you're gone? How would you like your epitaph to read? So let's think about that together. In fact, I want to give you about 45 to 60 seconds right now at all of our locations to pull out your mobile device or right there on your bulletin on the back toward the bottom is a place where if you have a pen or pencil, you can jot a few thoughts down. Now, those of you listening over the internet, I want to invite you to get involved too. We're literally going to pause here for just a moment and think about some words, some phrases, some things we'd like to be said about us on our epitaph. Would you take just a few moments and do that right now? Just go ahead and write down some things that you would like to be said about you once you're gone. You can keep working on that. I know that's not a lot of time at all. But see, when there are boring moments in the sermon, you can go ahead and work on that some more, okay? I invite you to do that. But I did the same thing this week that I just asked you to do. I wrote down some things that if my family would be willing to spring for the money, because you remember... These engravers charge by the letter and sometimes by the word, usually by the letter. And uh, so it can get rather pricey. But I wrote down 12 words that I'd like on the Rex Keener gravestone. Here they are. Rex Keener, husband, father, pastor, who sought to practice what he preached. I think that would be a, a pretty good epitaph. Now, I know you'll need more time to craft yours, but again, I urge you to keep thinking about that and and working on that and literally get it down to, you know, just a pithy short, maybe 12 words or so, just a short little epitaph for your life. Now, we all know that when an epitaph is 
inspirational and when it is one that really connects with what the person was, we know they usually have to do with character, right? And character really matters. Character matters in the corporation when you're hiring someone on the highest level. It matters in the school when you're meeting in the principal's office and there's a conflict of stories. It matters in marriage when often marriage boils down to your ability to trust your spouse's character. Character really matters. And when it comes to the Christ-following life, I want to say to all of you today, there is nothing that will have a greater impact on your leadership legacy than godly character. Long after you've forgotten my sermons, you will remember the sermon I preached with my life. So let's try to learn today as we dive in what we can learn from Samuel's example here. And I basically want to build this around four aspects of his character and actions, four things that might possibly be written on his tombstone. And toward the end, we're going to come full circle back around to your epitaph again as we close out this message. First, I want you to consider Samuel as a spiritual protector. Now, you may remember last week when we left off, a spiritual renewal was happening with the people. They had gathered for a day of prayer and fasting, and they were recommitting themselves to God. But as we left off, the Philistines were getting angry about this, and they had come together to attack them because they were the enemies of God. But God intervenes powerfully here. And the Philistines are routed in a devastating fashion. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 13 reads, So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. One man stood in the gap and with his character, courage, with his stellar commitment to the people of God and the purposes of God, this one man, Samuel, was able to keep the enemy at bay and keep God's people flourishing. You say, Pastor, how did he do that? Was he a military genius? As far as we know, he never, unlike some of these other judges you'll read about, during this period, so-called period of the judges, As far as we know, Samuel really never led them in military campaigns. His protection was more of a spiritual kind. He dealt with spiritual warfare as he was constantly praying for the people. Verse 14 of chapter 7 reads, The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. What a spiritual leader. His prayers brought thunder from heaven, victory to the Israelites. And later, his prayers brought rain from heaven when there was a drought. Samuel made a commitment to pray for the people that he led. Some 
weeks ago, Denzel Washington spoke, the popular actor, spoke at the commencement service of Dillard University. And the audience erupted in, a, in applause at many points throughout this short but very eloquent speech that he gave. And as he kind of told a little bit of his spiritual odyssey, he said, the most important thing that stayed with me is that I've been protected, I've been directed, and I've been corrected. I've kept God in my life, and it's kept me humble, he said. And his challenge to the student body, these college graduates, was three words. Put God first. Put God first. Now, that's a perspective that you'll rarely hear from Hollywood, even rarer to hear that promoted publicly by an actor. However, the idea of putting God first is a lot harder than it sounds. He goes on. He says, I've not always stuck with him, God, but he's always stuck with me. Stick with him, he challenged the graduates, in everything you do. And during his speech, he told a story, and I love this story, about his mom. And when he first began to make it in Hollywood as an actor, he was just kind of breaking out and becoming popular. And Denzel Washington says to his mother, Ma, did you ever think I would get so big and have all this money? And I'd be able to take care of everybody, and I can do this, and I can do that. I love his mom's response. She said, boy, stop it right there. Stop it right there. If you only knew how many people have been praying for you and how many prayer groups I put together to save your sorry behind. Don't you love his mother already? I'll tell you what you can do by yourself, his mom said. You go outside and get a mop and bucket and wash those windows. That's what you can do by yourself. I think Denzel's mother is very wise. She got it, what Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, apart from me, you can do Nothing. So let me ask you, what's your sphere of influence? Are you a teacher, a small group leader, a ministry leader or facilitator? Are you a CEO, an attorney? Do you work in the helping professions in some way? Let me ask you, how have you been praying for the people that you lead? How spiritually protected are they? Samuel was consumed by praying for his people. Even when they disappointed him and disappointed God, he still continued to pray. In fact, if you read these chapters carefully, the story of his life, you'll see that several times the people plead with him not to stop praying for them, but to continue interceding. This is not some codependent, unhealthy desire for mystical favors. It's a high level of trust these people have in the godly character of their spiritual leader. So it begs the question of every one of us. If our ball team, if our family, if our class, if our small group, if our community's well-being was totally based on our prayers for them, how would they be doing? The only thing standing between your people and God's enemies are the prayers sometimes that you offer on their behalf. 
How safe are they? Samuel was a spiritual protector. And all of us in leadership need to take seriously our role as interceders for the people we lead. There's another epitaph that describes Samuel's life, and that is Samuel as a humble listener. Some of the comments he listened to were good and uplifting. Others were rather negative and kind of pulled him down. But he had the humility to be a listener. Look at one example of that in 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, <laughs> you got to be impressed by their blunt honesty. You are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Strike two. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. You see, let me pause right there. Up until this time, Israel was more like a theocracy that had these judges as leaders, but they were about to become a monarchy. At least that's what they were requesting. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Any criticism is hard to hear, but when Samuel heard this about his sons, knowing it was true, it must have really hurt. Notice what Samuel did. Although Samuel was a spectacular leader, he was not perfect. He repeated the mistakes of Eli, his mentor. Remember Eli? In the first message, he was a good priest. But his sons became spiritual reprobates. They were sexually immoral and they were too casual with the sacred. And Samuel's sons here are not faring much better. Every family... Every organization has some dysfunction in it. And leaders have got to be humble enough to listen to constructive criticism and be open to the counsel of others. In fact, we ought to seek it out on a regular basis and try to find those kernels of truth in it. People, I've been in leadership long enough now that people often ask me questions about things and I'm often asked, what has surprised you about ministry and about being a pastor, about being a leader? What surprised you about that? And my answer is almost always the same. I say there are two things, honestly, that have just blown me away at how intense they've been through all these decades of leadership. I would have never guessed this before I became a leader. One is how challenging it can be to cast a clear vision for people. Just when you're about to throw up on your own words as a leader because you feel you've said it so much, trust me, there's some people who've never heard it the first time. Some get it fast, but it's very difficult to cast 
and clarify a vision for people. That has been astounding to me how challenging that can be. But the second thing is how frequent and intense the criticism is for leaders. You could have blown me away. I'd never dreamed there would be so much. And every leader, every woman or man who steps up to the plate and says, God, would you please use my life, is going to discover this. It's not unusual. It's just the common lot of leaders. And I would say to you, dear brothers and sisters, if you do that, if you step up and say, God, use my life, please trust me on this, you're gonna be critiqued. And, and Samuel was, and he needed that leadership humility to be able to listen. I like what John Stott said. He said, maturity, maturity as a leader is moving from a thin skin and a hard heart to a thick skin and a soft heart. You gotta have a thick skin, but you need to maintain a very soft and malleable heart. A third epitaph I want us to quickly consider is that Samuel could have been called on his tombstone a courageous truth teller. It's not popular to stand alone and tell people that their desires or their pursuits are inappropriate, but that's what Samuel did for the Israelites. He told them the truth. He said, you think you need a king. You think that's gonna solve your problems if you just had a king like all the other nations. But then he begins to describe to them what that will mean. It's gonna mean, among other things, that your sons are drafted into the military and some of them are gonna die on the battlefield as they pay the ultimate sacrifice. It's gonna mean that others will work in the fields to provide food and resources. Others will be forced to make weapons of war. Others will take your daughters to become cooks and bakers. He will take the rest of your harvest. Your tax, you're gonna start paying taxes. Samuel said, are you thinking about this, folks? This is what it's gonna mean if you get a king like the other nations. He's gonna take your servants, your livestock. Will be, you'll become like his slaves. And then he says in verse 18, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. They're thinking that government is gonna solve their problems. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Now you go, well, that's puzzling to me, pastor. What's going on here? This is the ultimate case of the divine saying, you asked for it, you got it. Every parent has been there. Where the child begs to eat the entire box of chocolate and you get so tired of the appeals and everything, you say, go ahead, but you're not gonna be happy. And he eats the whole box with glee, and two hours later, with tears streaming down his face, he's holding his stomach going, I don't feel good. And you drive home the lesson with one simple line, I tried to warn you. I tried to warn you. Samuel was trying to warn them. He was courageously telling the truth, 
What an epitaph that could be on his tombstone. As a leader, he was a courageous truth teller. Let me ask you, is there someone in your life today with whom you need to have a courageous, truth-telling sort of conversation? Back when Grace Fellowship was just a few years old, I'm not proud of this, but I'm just telling you the truth. I, I, in the early years here, used to work uh, a lot. And uh, I used to work regularly 70, 80 hours a week. And that's not unusual. Again, church planting is one of the most challenging things in the world as every church planter discovers. And you just want to see this rocket get off the launch pad. That's where most of the energy is expended because you're trying to overcome so much inertia and get some things moving. And so you just throw yourself into it. And the elders once asked me to keep a time log. And I did just basically what I did. There were many weeks, 68 hours, 75 hours, 82 hours, 59 hours of work. That was just a common sort of routine. Leave the house 5, 5.30 in the morning, get back 7 or 8 o'clock at night. At one point, I was leading four small groups, just me, trying to get small groups going, trying to get people motivated, preaching virtually every weekend, hardly ever away. These are challenging years, if you get the picture. And Debbie is home with our two young children. And she confronted me very lovingly about what she believed my future would look like if I continued in this irrational sort of workaholism. I'll never forget the conversation. She did the sandwich approach. You guys know what that is? You begin with a positive, you tell the concern, and then you end with more positives, the sandwich approach. And she began by saying, I'm so glad you're a hard worker. Boy, your parents really instilled that in you. That's a wonderful thing. I'm so glad I'm not married to a deadbeat husband. And she went on and on praising the fact that I have a work ethic. She said, but here's the concern. You're working way too many hours. And my greater concern is that somehow your identity is tied to your work in an unhealthy way. And it really was, by the way. Don't you hate it when your wife is right? Isn't, doesn't that just annoy you to no end? Your identity is related to your work in an unhealthy way. And and here's the bottom line. We miss you. You're gone so much. And I know you love the kids, but Allie and Chase are going to grow up not even knowing their dad if you keep working like this and are gone all the time. And you know what? And you're not going to like your life because you're going to have regrets that you can never go back and change she, she gave a challenge that we would start having three to four evenings a week at least when we had dinner together. And so I drank the Kool-Aid. As much as I hated to admit it, I believe she was absolutely right. And we agreed to make it a goal to begin to spend so much more time together as a family. And today, as the father of two young adults, I am so glad I made that choice. One of my favorite scriptures is Ephesians 4.15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. The most difficult people to tell the truth to, you know who they are, those closest to you. Your spouse, 
your children, your parents, your relatives, your friends, your neighbors, your classmates, your close co-workers. Those are the hardest. And rather than rock the boat, we tend to shy away from truth-telling. We struggle with speaking the truth in love. Now, next weekend, I'm going to talk about that a whole lot more, so I'm just going to leave it there for today. But Samuel could have as his epitaph a courageous truth-teller. And there's one final thing as we wrap up today's study. And I'm really, I really admire this about Samuel. So many things about his life are praiseworthy, but I really admire this, Samuel, a faithful finisher. The reason that's so impressive to me is that, if you don't believe this, I challenge you to study the scripture yourself, and you'll see there are very few women and men that finish well in the Bible. It's incredible. Some of the greatest leaders of God who did awesome things for God, but they fizzle before the finish line. And the same is true in life today. People can have an awesome career, a stellar life of character, but it's amazing how many people have a serious stumble or fall before <coughs> the finish line. In these next few chapters here, and we're going to see this in some of the upcoming messages, Saul is chosen to be anointed as Israel's first king. And during this time of transition of leadership, Samuel addresses the people. I want you to listen to the speech that he gives. Chapter 12, verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I've listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I, here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. Wow, he's just putting it out there in front of the people. Notice their response. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You've not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Wow, I admire that. Samuel was far Far from perfect, but he was passionate about being a faithful finisher. Anyone can start well, but your legacy is greatly amplified when you stay the course. I admire people who keep going all the way to the finish line. You've heard me praise Bill Romer through the years. This man, 80 years old, one of our elders, died probably a decade ago. And in his 80th year, he was learning Koine Greek so he could understand the Bible better and read it in Greek. That blows me away. We've got many people at Grace, I believe, who are well on their way to finishing well. Some of you have had a fantastic career. Maybe you were in the workplace for decades, built a successful business. You were a teacher, a nurse, a doctor, an attorney. You... you, you you had some amazing track record as 
a leader in your career. And so many have transitioned into being faithful leaders and volunteers in our church. Some are elders. Uh, Some lead a ministry or work on staff. They might lead a women's Bible study or help disciple younger Christians. Or some do more menial tasks around the church, like plant flowers or do landscaping or help clean one of the buildings or pull weeds. But whatever it is, they've decided they're going to finish strong. We've got so many marriages in our church that have been going for 40 years or more. Again, couples committed to staying the course and finishing strong. I hope you do too. Because if you do, that epitaph you quickly scribbled down may just end up on your tombstone one day. Steve Jobs, the genius behind the Apple Corporation, summed this up so powerfully in a speech he gave as he battled an incurable cancer. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away, Jobs wrote, in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. So let me ask you, what would you want people to say about you as they file past your casket. Hey, you beat me to heaven. Hope to be joining you sometime soon. Thanks for the godly example. Hey, thanks for your life of service. Because of you, so many others have been inspired. Hey, we're gonna miss your integrity at the office. Thanks for helping me when I was really in that tough place in life. You lifted me out of that pit by God's help. Because of your witness, I know the Lord today. What would you want people to say about you when they file past your casket? But as we close today, let me remind you of one very important thing. Well, it is important, I think, what people can say with integrity about us when we die. And what's written on our tombstone as an epitaph is real important. But far more important than what imperfect people say when you die or what's written on a tombstone, what really matters is God's opinion. He's the ultimate evaluator. And for true followers of Christ, the final epitaph will not be written, but spoken. That's right, spoken by your creator and Lord. And the final words that I really want to hear, just 12. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Just 12 words. But wow, what a goal worth living toward. Father, thank you for the amazing example of Samuel. There's so many brilliant facets to the gem of his life 
Thank you that we can learn from these and from the women and men who've gone before us and lived lives of excellence. And Lord, I pray that we'd give some time to that thought. What do we want on our tombstone? What do we want said when we pass away? There's a sense in which we're not ready for that. We're not even ready to live. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way that those words that we scribbled down could actually be said about us. And may you receive all the praise, all the glory, all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.